Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Kevin Sorbo, on his Christian faith, his acting career, and his latest film. I got very vocal, uh, not in a negative way. I just started questioning people on the, on the internet. I saw questioning people on movie sets quietly. They would be very loud and brash about bashing God or bashing mm-hmm. you know, conservatives or whatever, bashing Christians. And I would get them just one-on-one to talk to them and ask them about it. So my wife said, you better be careful. They're going to come after you. And I, didn't, I, I thought, well, why would they come after me? Why can't I have a freedom of speech? Well, sure enough, my manager and agent about a dozen years ago said we can't work with you anymore. Because mm. apparently being a Christian in Hollywood is worse than being a conservative. But put them together, I'm like a double leper to these people. Kevin Sorbo, next. Kevin Sorbo's acting career spans nearly 40 years and more than 90 TV shows and movies, including God's Not Dead, Soul Surfer, and his latest, Left Behind, Rise of the Antichrist. He's with us to give some insight into being a Christian in the world of movies and TV. Kevin, my understanding is less than 2% of actors make a living at it. When did you decide to become an actor, and how did you pursue that path? Well, I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, west of uh, Minneapolis. They're called a Mound, Minnesota. We were very famous for being home to Tonka Toys because we were in a lake called Lake Minnetonka. So there's a trivia question right there for people. But the Minneapolis-St. Uh, Paul area has more theater per capita than, than New York City does. Uh, the Minneapolis Twin Cities, they really support the, uh, the arts. And uh, there's mm. a very famous theater there called the Guthrie Theater. And uh, in fifth grade, we took a field trip to the Guthrie Theater to watch The Merchant of Venice. And um, uh, Shakespeare, obviously. And I didn't know what they were saying because I was 11 and it was Shakespeare. But I was completely mesmerized by the actors on stage. And my mom was one of the chaperones on the bus ride home. I was sitting next to my mom and she said, so what do you think? And I was because I was really kind of quiet and I was thinking, I said, you know something, mom, I'm going to be an actor. And she went, that's nice, dear. Got a little pat in the leg, you know. And uh, But the, the seat had been set. But I, I didn't really do anything until I got into college with it because I was I was a jock. You know, we made fun of the people in the drama class, even though I was, you know, yeah, a bunch of wimps. And then we'd walk by and I'd be looking in the door. What are they doing in there? You know? <laughs> so so I, let, I let the whole click thing in, 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 in high school, you know, in, grade, in junior, I sort of lead my life, which is too bad because I wish I would dove into it earlier. But um, I started playing around with it more. And I started doing Minneapolis and St. Paul are home to a lot of big uh, businesses headquartered to Best Buy and Target and Pillsbury, General Mills. And so I started doing a lot of commercials, signed with a commercial agent, did a lot of commercials, got that all important SAG card, that Screen Actors Guild card that allowed Mm. me to go to more commercial auditions and other auditions. So when I moved to LA, I had no problem getting a commercial agent. So very fortunate. One of the few guys I know that moved to L.A. that never had to work another job. Didn't have to wait tables or anything like that. I, I worked hmm. very well in commercials. We'd get the occasional guest spot on a murder road or a Cheers or the Commish, whatever. And um, then, you know, Hercules hit. And that obviously became a massive hit. That became the most watched TV show in the world. And I did seven years on that and five years in Andromeda. And then I just started doing a bunch of movies. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. That is pretty amazing. Over 30 years, you've you've never had to do anything besides acting. But my understanding is, from talking to other people, but reading a little bit about your life, there are a lot of disappointments, a lot of doors slammed in your face before things start to click. Well, yeah. I mean, I say I'm a 13-year-old overnight success in Hollywood. I, I, I kind of say that as a joke. But I mean, I stayed very busy. But I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, getting, I didn't get Hercules yet. Okay. I didn't get that until my, and I got in my thirties. So, um, I was plugging along. I was, you know, very comfortable doing the commercials and able to pay my rent and not have to freak out about that. And mm-hmm. I took the acting classes that I, I wanted to get into. Uh, n- nothing really got in the way of that with doing a regular nine to five job or something. So I was very fortunate to be able to study the craft and pursue it that way. Um, uh, but you know, we all have roadblocks in life and how do you handle them? Yeah. You know, to me, it was just, 
every time there was a no in my life, that just that just fueled the fire to me. That just made me and said, I'll show you. I'm going to make it, you know. And I, I just had no doubt ever since I was 11 that I was going to have some kind of success in the industry that I love so much. I mean, unfortunately, there's so much uh, negativity that comes out of Hollywood now at the movies they do that deal with anger and hate and divisiveness and um, over-sexualized and whatever it may be, you know, filled with violence. And I just said... Uh, I want to start doing movies. Really, 2010 was when I said I want to do movies that have a bigger positive impact on people. I want to do. I don't want to do movies that are always just negative and filled with hate. Well, my guest today on His People is uh, Mr. Kevin Sorbo. He is an actor, and he's telling us a bit about uh, how he got into this field, his passion for it. And can you tell us uh, how you came to Christ, Kevin? Just kind of parenthetically here, tell us uh, your Christian testimony. You know, my whole life, I don't remember not being away from Christ. I never, I never went through that. Oh, maybe he mm. doesn't exist. I, I, all I do is look at the stars at night, and I go, "Well, you can't get something from nothing." I don't care how. <laughs> maybe I don't have all the answers right now, but you know, there's something that created all this, and it wasn't you or me. So I never questioned that there was a God. But you know, I grew up in a very um, Lutheran family, typical Scandinavian blood in Minnesota, St. John's Lutheran Church. Um, I remember just, uh, you know, there was a place called The Room we had on Wednesday nights for teenagers to go to, for all the seventh grade through 12th graders to go to. Mm -hmm. And we had our youth pastor there. Because our, our, our regular pastor was kind of an older, scary guy to me as a kid growing up. But Pastor Lee was this 23-year-old guy that came in, and we had the beanbags and beat up old couches and stuff. And Wednesday after football and basketball practice, you know, some of the guys and I would all go up there and hang out and talk to him, you know. And he was a cool guy to talk to. He didn't he didn't do the fire and brimstone thing with us. You know, we'd read the Bible, we'd talk about verses, and he would bring it in today's world, you know, to my world, the teenage world. So he was a huge influence. But I think uh, when I was 13 years old, I had something that was really instrumental to me was, uh, I told this story in Larry King, actually. And uh, hmm. we had uh, a field trip. I mean, the whole churches from all across the state went to see the Reverend Billy Graham speak at the downtown uh, Minneapolis fairgrounds, St. Paul fairgrounds, mm -hmm. outside, hot August night, full moon, yeah. 250,000 people. It was massive. I mean, I just, it just it felt like this giant organism just all breathing together at the same time. And after he finished, he said, come on down. I got a lot of people here if you want to talk. So I went there and sat down the grass with this guy that was probably in the early 30s. But as a 13-year-old, he's like an old dude to right. me. Right, yes. <laughs> and uh, we were just talking. And all of a sudden, a hand went on my head, and I turned around, and it was Billy Graham. He had his team with him, his bodyguards. He needs to be protected. I yeah. get it. And the, his head was just right behind the full moon, and these beams were coming out of it. And it was just, <laughs> I felt goosebumps every time I tell this because it was so cool. And then I got a call from the Larry King guys. Uh, Larry Rosser heads up his PR team down there in Dallas, said, hey, um, the Reverend loved your story. He wants you to tell it. And the, they're going to do a hardcover book for him. They've never done a hardcover for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Oh, yeah. They're going to do it with him. And they want you to write one of the chapters. Well, I wrote the chapter. Months later, the book came out. And I got called again. They said he would love it if you could travel the country and promote it for him because he's in his 90s. He can't get around very well. Mm. And I was like, honored. And I th that just bolstered my faith, I think, more than anything else. And so it was a pretty cool, pretty cool uh, experience for me to have. What did you write the chapter on? I wrote it on that meeting with him. Because the whole the hundred it was everything about the hundred one stories about Billy Graham were people's encounters with Billy Graham. So that that was the story I wrote was just my meeting with him and how huge it was in my life. Well, Kevin, you've been involved in film for so many years. You've you've done some uh, Christian films recently. I want, want to ask you about the Left Behind one, but sure. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the power of film in people's lives in the culture. Sure. It sort of seems like that universal language. Well, Walt Disney said back in the 50s, movies and television will influence our youth. Well, hello. 
Do you see the way it's being played out? Yeah. I mean, Hollywood really changed in the 60s. You know, in Vietnam, the, the, the hippies, the free love, the civil rights movements, all this stuff. Hollywood started doing movies that would glorify bad behavior. Look, I loved, uh, I'm a big fan of Paul Newman. I mean, that for yeah. me, that was the guy that made me want to be an actor. Mm -hmm. But when they, I love Butch Cass, Sundance Kid, very entertaining movie, very fun. But Butch and Butch Cass, Sundance Kid were not good looking guys. They weren't guys that had very quippy dialogue. These were bad guys who killed people, mm -hmm. but they glorified who these guys were. And Hollywood has a way of doing that. And they've been doing it ever since. And we live in a world now that if you tell the truth, you get you get attacked for it. Facebook took me down for telling the truth two years ago because Zuckerberg and his trolls and minions don't like the truth. They would rather live in the world of lies. They live the world of hate and anger. And that's the world we live in right now. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think Left Behind is a perfect movie for, for what's going on in our world. Well, you, you've done a number of Christian films. God's Not Dead, you're going to be yeah. recognizable. Uh, if people Google you, let there be light. And now The Left Behind, The Rise of the Antichrist. Uh, tell us about it. Tell us about the film, and, and it, does, it, does it pick up where the 2014 one left off? Yeah, it's a sequel to it. It's six months later. But i got to give a full circle story yep. here. Back in 2010... Um, I got a call from a buddy of mine that was going to direct the movie and said, read the script, see what you think. Well, I read the script. And I said, who's playing Pastor Ben in this movie? He said, well, I got this guy. There. I go, no, no, I'm playing the pastor. And he said, he goes, dude, I can't afford you. This is a really low budget movie. And I said, pay me what SAG says you have to pay, minimum, whatever it may be. I have to play this role. Well, I've done close to, I've done over 80 movies. And what if is in my top three? It happens to be the same writers that did God's Not Dead that I shot a couple years later. Mm -hmm. It is a better movie than God's Not Dead. If you have not seen What If You Have to See It. And the guy that funded that movie was a guy by the name of Jerry Jenkins, who wrote the Left Behind books along with Tim LaHaye. The guy who directed that movie was Dallas Jenkins, who's doing quite a bit of work right now with The Chosen. So it's interesting for me to come, and now I get to direct and star in one of these movies that based off the books that Jerry Jenkins wrote, because when that movie came out in 2014, uh, the last Left Behind movie with Nicolas Cage, they got inundated with letters at Cloud 10, which is based in Toronto. They own the rights to the books. And they said, why didn't you not have Kevin Sorbo in the role of Rayford Steele? Why do you have Nick Cage, who's an atheist? Why didn't you get Kevin Sorbo? So they called me two years ago and they said, look, we got this script that we want to do. We're going to do a rewrite on it because we're going to bring it into today's world because the craziness going on from COVID and cancel culture and woke and all the crazy, you know, stuff that pastors going away from the church and, uh, and, and, you know, the government's calling for a central government world, one world government, one currency. So we brought that into the movie. So I think people find it very interesting that it's very current day. How do you hope it uh, encourages audience? In other words, what hope should they take away from seeing the film? Well, you brought in the word right there that we need is hope. And I'm hope I hope this movie brings people hope because I think the biggest killer out there is apathy right now. And the biggest mm. weapon all governments, not just our own, are using against its people is fear. And we need, you know, the only person who's supposed to fear in life is, is God. It's in the Bible. Don't fear all these other people. We need the sheep. I don't know what we're going to do with the sheep, but we need lions to wake up. We need lions that not be afraid to go out there and speak the truth and be, be bold about it. So I hope people walk out and I hope they read the book of Revelation because that's what these, these stories are based off of. And I hope that makes them read the Bible more. And I hope they bring a friend that's an atheist or agnostic. Don't, I don't want, I, I want, I want the choir to support this movie, but I also want people that aren't, you know, of any faith. This is an action thriller. This is a political action thriller more than anything else. And when I first read Revelation when I was 12 years old, it read like a sci-fi movie to me. Mm -hmm. And I got to understand it more as it went on, but 
boy, I mean, John had to be on some, you know, I got a friend who read it and said that guy had to be on some serious acid when he had this dream <laughs> <laughs> because it's crazy when you look at it. But I, I, I don't fear it anymore. I look at it as a place of mm -hmm. hope and I hope people do the same thing. Now, obviously, uh, Left Behind is, is depicting a particular end time scenario. And sure. what would you say to those that would look at it and say, well, I, I hold a different view or I don't feel this particular one is biblical? Um, I'm fine with that. I'm, to me, it's like getting, here's a, here's a point of view written by the writers saying, look, it, it, when, you, when you're dealing with any sort of futuristic thing, whether it's sci-fi or not, it can be anything. I mean, when Star Trek came out back in the 60s, you know, what are our communicators today? Those are cell phones are the things that Captain Kirk was holding back in 1966. So yep. um, you, it can be there, there's so many things you could think and talk about and write about. But this deals with six months after the rapture. And my character, Rayford Steeles, lost his wife and lost his son. I love the fact they left my college daughter behind because I think there's going to be a lot of college students being left behind. <laughs> so I think it's pretty, you know, pretty mm -hmm. much predicting what's going to happen. What's interesting, and you see it in the trailer, if you go to leftbehindmovie.com, leftbehindmovie.com, you can see it in the trailer. I go back to the church my wife went to who warned me about the rapture, who tried to get make me become a Christian. And um, I go there, and who do I find? I find the pastor. And I guarantee you there's a lot of pastors out there that have fallen away. And because you see they're living, they're, they're, they're in the cancel culture. They're, they're in the woke world right now as well. Churches don't even want to work together anymore. This is crazy, guys. We need to work together. And uh, I, I think this movie is so perfect for our time. And by the way, Jerry Jenkins came out with a quote that he says we can use. He said, this is by far and away the best left behind movie they've ever made. And he said, it's perfect for the time of the world we're living in right now. And interestingly enough, your wife, who is an actress herself, has a role in the movie. She does. It's actually one of my favorite scenes happens to be with her. I mean, I directed, and I don't always pick the favorite scene to be my own, but there's a scene that we do in the church together where she plays uh, agnostic, and she's still sort of on the fence about it all. But we talk about a picture, which I love the writers wrote this in because it's a, it's a framed picture I had in my room as a kid. My mom put it in my room. And it's a picture of Jesus knocking on the door, but there's no door handle on his side because you're the one, if you want Jesus and God to come into your life, you're the one who has to open that door to let him into your heart. So it's an amazing, touching scene. Uh, my son is in it, but we got a great cast with Neil McDonough. People are going to know him right off the bat. He's wonderful in it. Yeah. Uh, Bailey Chase is great. Uh, Corbin Burnson, Greg Perot plays one of the, plays the, the lead, lead anchor man that uh, is going against the grain and saying, why are we not talking about the truth on the news? Which I thought was great that we're pointing that out. Because I think we all know it, but there's, you know, there's apathy is the biggest killer of America right now in the world, I think. And then uh, um, Sarah Fisher, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine, who played my daughter again. We did; she played my daughter in a sitcom we did, uh, but she's fantastic as my my daughter in this movie. Well, Mr. Kevin Sorbo is my guest today on His People, and he um, is an actor, and we've just been talking about the new movie, Left Behind, Rise of the Antichrist, and I know our time's limited here, Kevin, but I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, your your time in Hollywood, it, it, really the challenges of being an outspoken Christian in Hollywood. Can you, can you talk about some of the challenges? I mean, you've been very outspoken yeah. about those. I'll be honest. I got to a point about 10, 11 years ago, I told my wife, and she was ready to. We got family here in Florida. We left California four years ago. We live in Florida now, thank God. Mm. Um, it's been a good move for us. <laughs> but uh, she, we talked about moving years and years ago. I got very vocal, uh, not in a negative way. I just started questioning people on the, on the Internet. I saw questioning people on movie sets. 
quietly. They would be very loud and brash about bashing God or bashing, mm -hmm. you know, conservatives or whatever, bashing Christians. And I would get them just one-on-one -on -one to talk to them and ask them about it. So my wife said, you better be careful. They're going to come after you. And I, didn't, I I thought, well, why would they come after me? Why can't I have a freedom of speech? Well, sure enough, my manager and agent about a dozen years ago said, we can't work with you anymore. Mm. Because apparently being a Christian in Hollywood is worse than being a conservative. But put them together, I'm like a double leper to these people. So uh, I, I I said, fine. I Hollywood owes me nothing. But uh, Andrew Breitbart was a dear friend of mine, passed away years ago. And he said, uh, politics runs downstream from culture. Who runs the culture? Hollywood does. Mm -hmm. With the movies they put out. I mean, I tell people all the time, you think there's a problem with the nuclear family. Well, Hollywood has been very instrumental in that. Because you look at every sitcom, every movie. If you got a, if you got a family... The, the, it's a sitcom. The dad is kind of out of shape and doofus. The mom's kind of hot. The kids all gang up on dad and just laugh at him. And that's what we've done. We've made the father figure in families to be a joke in a laughing matter. When, when the, the family of husband and wife together is so important in our world, and yet we're just we're trying to get rid of it, and it's successful for them. So I just said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do movies that are, that are opposite. I'm going to do what movies that Hollywood used to do, where good does triumph over evil, that there is hope out there, there's redemption. There's no promise everything perfect, because God never said there'd be a perfect mm -hmm. world, right? You're going to have hardships. Everybody's got a story, and I get it. Everybody's got a story. But how do you react to that roadblock when it hits you? Do you blame God? Do you blame a God you don't believe in? Because a lot of people do that as well. Do you blame family, friends, the world? I think the government gets bigger because people in this country now uh, just want to be taken care of. They're afraid of failure, so they decide to just be a failure without even trying anymore. You know, yeah, failure is a good thing. I, I I learned so much from failure. And I learned it from other people that I would meet that was successful. When I say, how did you become successful? They said, oh, Kevin, I failed for many years. And people just are, are afraid right now and angry. And their anger is coming after people like you, people like me, for posting the truth, for having a different opinion. And it's amazing that the smaller voice out there seems to get, you know, the squeaky wheel syndrome, right? They get all the mm -hmm. attention. Why can't we have other points of views? I don't get angry at people that are atheists or, or agnostic. I don't. To me, let's talk about it. I've got agnostic and atheist friends. Yep. I've, got, I've got liberal friends. And they laugh, too, at the, their own liberal party that is so filled with hate. They see it. And these are good people. And there'll be a lot of good people left behind. And that when the tribulation does start, they'll have a chance. It'll be a tough seven years, but they'll have a chance to, to reconcile their, their relationship with God. Well, Kevin, I did want to ask you just briefly about your, your book, really about your stroke. Your book is True Strength, My Journey from Hercules to Mere Mortal, How, how Dying, uh, Nearly Dying, Saved My Life. And that, that is a part of your life maybe a lot of people aren't aware of, but you, you talked about, of course, the, the, how adversity, how God uses adversity in our lives, uh, sometimes failure and different things. Can you talk about uh, such a, a career devastating uh, setback as a stroke yeah. and, and how the Lord was used that? It was at the end of season five in Hercules. I had all kinds of problems with my left arm. I couldn't figure what was going on. My my fingers were numb and cold. And But I was doing most of my own stunts because my ego said that I could, and I loved doing it. And it just got to a point. I said, okay, I got to see a doctor. So I came back to the States. We had a break between season five and six. They found a lump way up here before they can do an aneurysm on it. I mean, a, a biopsy on it. Um, they didn't know it was an aneurysm. Well, it ended up being an aneurysm mm. from months of spitting out blood clots in my arm. Well, I went to my chiropractor. Now, in eight years, he's never cracked my neck because I don't like my neck cracked. Leave my neck alone. He's well aware that if I have any new chiropractor that I visit for whatever reason, the first thing I say, do not crack my neck, okay? Yeah. Before years ago, I hated it. Well, a voice inside my head says, don't let him crack your neck over and over again. I thought, this is so weird. Why, mm. why is this voice warning me? What do you mean, don't crack? He's never cracked my neck. Why would he crack it? Well, he cracked it this way. It ended up being an aneurysm. And that crack 
for something that neurologists call retrograde flow. Hmm. And it kicked the blood just for a second to go back up against the flow like salmon going upstream. Well, I suffered a series of strokes. Hmm. Um, I still have a 10% loss of vision in both eyes, but it took me four months to learn how to walk and balance again. And it took me another uh, three years fully to really get... You can't say a full recovery, but people would not be able to see the deficiencies. Mm -hmm. I, I know what they are, but uh, you would not notice it. Um, but it took me, you know, I had to work on my speech. I had to work on everything. So um, it definitely, mm -hmm. you know, I had my battles with God, even though he was warning me. Um, but it de definitely made me uh, look at the world in a different way. And I think it was huge in sort of setting a different course for me, and a different path for me that I never thought I'd be going down. And when I wrote the book, um, I it, it created another door that opened for me that I never thought I'd be doing, and that's public speaking. So I do about 12 to 15 a year. Most of them are anything from medical to Christian education to pro-life. Probably the, most, the majority is pro-life because in the book you find out that I'm a Christian and pro-life. So um, I do a lot of speaking now, and it's a road I never thought I'd go down. And it's been a blessing to be part of that world because I've met a lot of people that say my book has saved their lives and stopped them from feel, feeling sorry for themselves. Because as my wife said, she said, it happened. What are you going to do about it? And I needed that tough love to push me through. And as you look toward the future, w w do you see yourself on, on the same uh, acting, directing Speaking. Oh, yeah. Clint was my hero. I'm gonna I want to do it till I'm in my 90s. So uh, I'm gonna keep making movies. I've got two other movies that are done in the can. One of my directed that comes out later. Those come out later this year. I shot five other movies in the last seven months. Those will come out late next year, early next year. And I've already booked five movies for this year. In fact, I'm taking off here and to go shoot a movie up in North Carolina. You're staying very busy. I love staying busy. I don't like sitting around. Film and television actor Kevin Sorbo. We transition now to a conversation about a Kentucky ministry which helps people with disabilities. Here's Patrick Herman. There is a ministry in Kentucky that helps build handicap ramps for those in need, and they're just finished off their 1,000th ramp. Joe Burkhead, welcome to his people. Well, thanks, Patrick. I'm uh, glad to uh, join you. Now, I think you're the head of the quote-unquote ramp-building ministry, but it didn't always start that way. It was called Helping Hands at one time, right? Well, we started out uh, building ramps back in 1995 as part of our Reedland United Methodist Church Helping Hands ministry. And we did all kinds of different things, uh, electrical work and minor plumbing repairs. And we got a request from uh, a citizen of Paducah that needed a, a wheelchair ramp. And so our Methodist men's president and one of my good friends, Billy Thistlewood, asked me if I thought I could build it if he drew it. And so we agreed that, yes, we could do that. He studied up on the uh, ADA codes, the American Disability Association codes, and uh, we built an ADA certified ramp. And probably that first year we built five or six, and then it doubled the next year and within seven or eight years, we had gone to one a week. We've been building one a week ever since. But now you're doing like 50 or I think you did 60 this last year. We did 60 last year. I try to keep it at one a week, but we have such a demand. And there is another group in our area that started out with us. Uh, actually, there have been two more groups in the area within the last 10 years. One group built with us for two years, and then we decided we would split up by county. Uh, they have since pretty much aged out um, and burned out, and that's what I've tried to avoid over the years is that we don't do so much and that we enjoy our bills enough that people not only get – I mean, we all feel like we're the hands and feet of God, uh, but 
it's still you still can't burn out on it and you've got to, uh, to enjoy the work and enjoy being around each other so another ministry uh, started at the Walnut Grove Church of Christ in Benton, Kentucky, about uh, 30 miles away. And they worked with us for a couple of months, and then they split off, and they're doing quite a few ramps as well. Now, you guys must have lots of volunteers. I know in the picture I saw there was like 10 of you sitting on the ramp that you guys had made, and it looks like just a good fellowship time as well. It really is. Uh, you know, there are oh, about half a dozen of us go out to eat breakfast before or go out to eat lunch afterwards. We just, we're all good friends. There are, some of us play pickleball together, some of us water ski together. And But the main thing is that we all enjoy what we do. We all enjoy helping others. And there is a huge need. Uh, you know, it's it's people don't think about it. A lot of people don't think about the need until they have the need. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm 74, and I've got four artificial joints. So someday these guys are going to be building me a ramp. <laughs> and, uh, and and likewise, the oldest, uh, And when you look at the picture, the oldest person in that picture is 83, and the youngest person is 15. And that, that particular ramp was an unusually long ramp. It was 69 feet. An average ramp is, I mean, they vary anywhere from... 25 or 30 feet up to the longest one we've built is, uh, was 135 feet. And so, but the average ramp length is about 40 feet. That's incredible. So that was a big ramp. And yes, that was an unusually large crew that day. And you're hoping that the people, I mean, do you get the chance to talk to them about Jesus or is it just the, the action going there and doing this great blessing for them? What do you guys leave with them other than the, the ramp itself? Well, that's, a very interesting question. What happens is I always go before we do the build and measure the ramp. And I kind of let the situation dictate. A lot of times I'll, I'll be talking to maybe an older couple who doesn't have any family in the area. And they're often already church, but uh, in some cases not. The couple we built, the ramp that you're looking at, that, that couple has a church in Paducah, they don't feel particularly attached to it. And Sherry, the wife, who was not the one needing the ramp, it's her husband that needed it, said that she would like to come and visit our church because mm. uh, so you know, my, my wife and I plan to pick them up when her husband is well enough to get out and uh, have them come and visit us. So, you know, we talk about what we do to them and why we do it, and that becomes a, a self-explanatory few minutes of ministry in itself. Sometimes that turns into a 30-minute conversation, and, and I always try to be there as long as the person needs me to be there to talk. So so I go, I get I get requests for the ramp. Typically through the church office, I'll get a request for a ramp. Those requests come from word of mouth. Uh, people see a ramp, and they may ask the person that has that ramp who did that for them. And we've built about Oh, I've actually done a few surveys, and we've built about two out of every three ramps that currently exist in Paducah or in the western Kentucky area. That's a lot. Um, and we have there are some unique things about our ramp that we've learned to do over the years that uh, make it more efficient to build. And, and plus, it's it's we do everything ADA approved, and not that's not necessarily the case, and often is not the case. And the slope of the ramp is really critical for. For most people, especially if you have a heavy 
person in a wheelchair or if you have an elderly couple, um, if you, you know, the, the minimum slope is 12 to 1. If you try to make a ramp steeper than that, even if they have an electric chair, electric chairs will tip over backwards Ooh. if you go up a steep slope with them. So those things are really important. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I try to, I try to sit down and minister with people and just, uh, you know, be an, be an ear and a, and a hand on their shoulder as well as the guys that put screws and boards. You know, I guess what amazes me and why I picked up on this national news about you guys in Paducah, Kentucky, which is the home of Stephen Curtis Chapman, by the way, is that yes, by the way? <laughs> by the way, yes. And we've listened. To, we've heard Steve. He's actually been to our church a couple of times back years ago, and and done, done performances. Yeah, he's fantastic. Love that guy. But it's a twenty-five mile radius that you guys are working on, which is so relatively small. You think of the United States, you think of the world, and it's just a little speck. And yet, you guys are <laughs> pouring out your heart for the people there. And I think that kindness or that ministry can certainly be spread, that joy can be spread throughout different regions, especially in our community, and maybe somebody would want to say, I can do that, or something similar. I'll tell you an interesting story. One of the the, the Roman Catholic person that's in our group, uh, a guy named Mike, Mike has a brother back in South Carolina, and his brother uh, became very ill and needed a ramp. And Mike went looking. He was talking to one of his other close relatives, and the guy says, "Oh, hey, there's a Methodist uh, men's group here that builds wheelchair ramps." And so Mike is working with us as a Roman Catholic volunteer on our Methodist men's group here in Paducah, Kentucky. His brother desperately needs or has to have a ramp because he couldn't get in and out of his house with the illness he had. Uh, and it was going to be long-term. So a Methodist men's group, just by coincidence, out in South Carolina, built his brother a ramp. Oh. So you know what? God works in mysterious ways becomes a cliche too often. But when something like that happens, you just can't help but say, well, yeah, <laughs> God does work in mysterious ways. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guests, actor Kevin Sorbo and Joe Burkhead of the Reedland United Methodist Men's and Friends Ramp Ministry in Paducah, Kentucky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Peter Greer on what he calls the gift of disillusionments. Your initial idealism, uh, it is going to be confronted by reality. And the reason why it's a gift is because it's an opportunity to explore what is it that is going to keep us going in those inevitable challenges. And it's a gift because it reminds us to say, and where is our hope? Is our hope in our ability to grit it out? Is our hope in our ability to engineer a solution to every challenge? Is our hope rooted in us? Or is there an invitation to find our hope in a very different source? That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.